Philippians chapter 2, we will read the passage, we will pray, we will trust the Lord to speak to us this morning. So we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. So the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all as you as sorry, for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Father, now we ask that you would grant your Holy Spirit to speak to us through your word, knowing that your word is sufficient in all areas of our life to instruct us, to teach us, to encourage us, to correct us, to turn us to you. We thank you for this great moment that we have here at the beginning of the week to hear from you and to submit our, our hearts and our minds and even our very lives to what you might say to us in your word. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps my great motivation to speak on Martin Luther has to do with the fact that the first word in my sermon introduction today is Kanye West, which I can be honest in saying I never thought I would start a sermon with the words Kanye West, but here we go, and I hope it proves to be of use to you. Kanye West has been active in the hip-hop scene for a long time. In recent months, he's made some waves that have perked the ears of Christians all across the country, as he announced a while back his desire to release an album titled Jesus is King, which if you know anything about Kanye West, that seems contrary entirely to anything that he's about. His statements about his own faith and his church activities have been met with doubt by some and by others, a uh, sense that God is moving in an unusually powerful way by bringing him into the fold. What I hear from the guy, though, is consistent with what I would expect from a new convert in any other context. He seems to trust Christ. The more important question is, how do we respond to God doing something like this? Should we rejoice about it? I think so. Anytime anyone's saved, right? Does it mean that God has chosen his great servant and in an amazing new way there will be a great awakening across the country? I don't think so. Probably not. We praise God that Kanye seems to have repented and believed in Christ. We praise God that many people who have never heard or perhaps has rejected the gospel will hear it again and may turn to faith in Christ. Today what we see in Philippians chapter 2 though is Paul lifting up two guys that are to be honored not for their accomplishment or notoriety, but for the character that God has worked in them, 
that they are working out to emulate the humility of Christ. In a time where we can rejoice and be glad in conversions of people like Kanye, we need to remember to look to those around us who have, as Paul says, proven their worth, and to honor them, rejoice in them, and imitate them. So my Irish commentator, uh, J. Alec Mottier, said that the Lord is the Christian's model. Now that is not to say that Christ in, in and only this, this, this context is simply a model for us to follow. He's not just simply a good teacher, as he's often labeled today. But in part, when we consider who we ought to follow, who we ought to act like, we can look to no one else besides Jesus Christ. And so, the commentator says, Timothy and Epaphroditus are then model Christians. So as Paul brings them to our mind, we ought to consider them in that way. It's necessary that we remember that God is at work in us to produce the same kind of Christ-exalting character day by day. And that we are called to work out what he is working in us, as we saw a couple weeks ago in verses 12 and 13 of the same chapter. So first we're going to look at Timothy. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see that I've kind of given you um, three points of characteristics of Timothy and then three points of the characteristics of Epaphroditus. So we'll start with Timothy, looking at verses 19 through 24. You'll see that he has a genuine concern for others, that he is a selfless seeker of Christ, and that he serves as a son, serves with his father. Last week, looking at chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, we saw Paul's exhortation to have humble unity within the church, that there should be no grumbling, no um, disputing amongst you, that you should be blameless and innocent in Christ. He said that we ought to have a right standing with all, and a faithful, joyful, sacrificial patience for the day of Christ. Paul's description of Timothy is what comes up next. So we might consider, why is he connecting these two things? And the answer should be, probably, that he's trying to give us a person to look to that exemplifies these very things he's teaching. It cost Paul greatly to send Timothy to Philippi. No one had proven more useful to Paul's ministry than him. And what sets him apart was that he has embraced the mind of Christ that we saw in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, you'll remember. He has embraced the mind of Christ so much that God's work in him is both evident, you can see it, and it's exemplary, it stands out. Paul wants to send just the right person to show the mind of Christ that is humble and does all things without grumbling and arguing. Now, if you, you may be thinking, you know, what you might know about Timothy, and you might be thinking ahead to um, the beginning of 1 Timothy, which is where my mind goes. You don't have to turn there right now. But uh, one of my favorite lines in 1 Timothy, although it's, it doesn't sound very spiritual or theological, is verse 3 in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, when Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And it, it's it's interesting to me because in, in a deeper study of Timothy, what you'll find out is that Timothy was left at Ephesus and not excited about it at all. And so he gets a letter from Paul, and you might imagine him opening the scroll, getting excited to hear from his teacher. What's he going to say? I hope he says I get to leave Ephesus and come to him soon. And what is he, what's the first instruction? Stay on at Ephesus. This is kind of humorous. Um, but, you know, so Timothy is not a perfect person in any way, shape, or form. We ought not look at Timothy and Epaphroditus as those who have achieved a certain level that um, is, is beyond our imagination, beyond what we could ever even see or, or think to see in another person. 
And as I said, it cost Paul greatly to send Timothy to Philippi. He didn't want to send him. If it was up to him, he would have kept him on, kept him with him. So this first thing he says about Timothy is that he has a genuine concern for the church. So again, looking at verse 19, I hope to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. So there's also this other motive of saying, hey, look, you, you sent Epaphroditus. We'll see this in a little bit. Epaphroditus has come to um, get the letter from Paul to, to send it back to the Philippians. And, and Paul wants to be continually encouraged by what's going on in Philippi. So he wants to send Timothy as well so that he might return with good news. But he says here again in verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul says that there's no one like Timothy. It's not to say that there is no one else that cares, but that Timothy's care stands apart. He alone can provide the level of genuine concern that Paul desires to send to Philippi. So when Timothy goes, Timothy is in a way an extension of Paul's heart towards the Philippians. There are certainly other people that Paul could have sent. You can see that in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, as he talks about other brothers that were encouraged by Paul's imprisonment to preach the gospel, and that he was happy about that, that they showed such commitment to gospel proclamation. But none of them quite fit the bill as Timothy did. The problem was that there, are, there were still others who sought their own interests, as Paul says here in verse 21, um, in verse 21 of chapter 2, that Timothy, there's no one like him, he's genuinely concerned for your welfare, because they, verse 21, um, there are other Christians around him that he sees, and it says, he says that they just seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Now, when, when Paul is talking about this here, we, we ought not think that these others are, are so far removed from Timothy, and Timothy's the only one who's doing the right thing. We'll see in a second um, why Paul says, says it the way he does. But I want to remind you of verse 3 of chapter 2. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. So these, these uh, theolo theological truths um, combined with the character of Christ in other believers that Paul is building throughout this letter is exemplified in Timothy. Timothy is the one that he chooses to show this kind of concern where to, to the extent that Timothy considers others more significant than himself. These others that he talks about that seek their own interest have not done this work found in verse 3. They do not consider others as more important than themselves and thus have a significant struggle with making Christ only second place in their heart instead of first in their perspective. Here's an important question for us as we examine the character of Timothy. Does my faith in Christ stand out in a way that shows that I am not my own primary concern? Is there something evident that we can point to in our testimony and what we show of our faith to other people that tells, uh, tells other people that I do not put myself first in my own life? As Timothy shows us. Has the mind of Christ from chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, truly um, transformed us and given us this kind of humility that it would affect our perspective effectively? So again... Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this was the passage for a handful of weeks ago, but remember this is perhaps the high point of the whole book of Philippians, and this is what we're coming back to as we consider why should we look at Timothy? Why should we look at Epaphroditus? Because the example that we've, we have in Christ, this mind of Christ that he wants to have um, spread throughout the church is being shown in Timothy's character. So more questions come to my mind as I, as I compare myself and compare my perspective with Timothy's perspective. Is it clear through my words and deeds that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Is that shown in how I, can, how I care genuinely for others? Has God worked in me so much that I see those kind of things in my outward works. The genuine concern of Timothy for the Philippians is actually a Greek word that relates to birthright. Timothy's care for the church ran deeply from a heart that, he, that knew he and the Philippians were both born again into God's family, and so he would serve them consistently with how he served alongside Paul. Timothy is also called here a selfless seeker of Christ. There's no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Implication, Timothy is seeking not his interests, but the interests of Jesus Christ. So Paul uses hyperbole to describe the uniqueness of Timothy in verse 21. It's not as though Timothy is the only Christian in the Roman Empire who seeks the interests of Christ rather than himself, but that compared to others around him who are on their own journeys, Timothy stands apart as one who's made Christ first in all things in his life. I'll now ask you to humor me as a former English teacher about hyperbole. To continue considering the use of hyperbole in Scripture, I'd like you to consider Luke 14, verse 26. This is probably one of the best ones to look at in considering hyperbole, because um, if we don't consider it as hyperbole, it can be very confusing. So this is Jesus speaking, and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, what is Jesus saying here? Is he requiring that true believers feel hatred towards their mother, father, their children, their brothers and sisters, and even their own life, those good things that God has given them? Given them? It sounds like it, right? If we just read it at face value, he's certainly um, confusing us a little bit here. Well, of course not. He's getting at the idea that a true disciple will put Christ above all the other things. Not just in placement, but that the love for Christ in a believer is qualitatively different than his love for anything or anyone else. So it is with Timothy. When Paul considered whom he could send, Timothy wasn't just a good choice, he was the obvious choice. There's no room for self-priority in the gospel-worthy life. Remember this phrase from Philippians 1.27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Remember this from a few weeks ago that we talked about the gospel-worthy life is our direction for living a life that shows that what we've heard in the gospel has not only a significant meaning to us, but has a transformational power. That's what the gospel-worthy life is about. 
It's not to say that God looks at us and says, there's somebody who's worthy of good news, but rather it is that we've received this good news, though we were enemies of God, that we were sinners. And it, as, as Jonathan Edwards would say it, since we're talking about church history, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that we deserve wrath, and yet God has given us grace. He's given us the gospel. And so that gospel-worthy life is not one that says that I've deserved what God's given to me, but rather I show that what God has given to me not only is meaningful, but it is powerful and transformational. It also isn't to say that we take no enjoyment in other interests or hobbies, special foods or holidays that bring us some measure of joy. But I think of my life in comparison to the testimony of Timothy, and I have to ask, am I working out my salvation with fear and trembling by seeking the things of Christ over the things of me. I can't create this attitude in my heart. God must create it. Remember, again, chapter 2, verse 13. Why is it that we're called to work out our salvation? Because it is God who is working in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So here is a call for us to deal with sin. Because Paul did have to make this distinction. He did have to say that there's Timothy and then there's everyone else who seems to be still struggling in a great measure with seeking their own interests instead of the interests of Christ. We will, from the point of salvation to the day of Christ, face temptation to sin and the old mindset of setting self first. But by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we can progressively put away that mindset and walk closer and more faithfully with the mind of Christ. Lastly, Paul calls Timothy, one who served, verse 22, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father he has served with me in the gospel. Paul's commendation of Timothy is perhaps best shown here in verse 22. He describes the way they work together as one of a father and a son. We can't miss the sense of humility in this illustration. Timothy was not one to strike out on his own apart from his teacher. Paul appeals to the fact that at the time, most sons would grow up learning their dad's trade and one day take it over. In that this is less common, you may consider a young child helping her mother in the kitchen or father with yard work. The heart of small children in these kinds of activities is to be with their mommy or daddy, doing what they do because they want to be like them. So Timothy's track of discipleship was very enviable for any young pastor. He was day and night following after Paul the Apostle. He served with Paul. So remember, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, the introduction, the greeting that he writes, Paul and Timothy, and he calls both himself and Timothy servants of Christ, rather than saying that he was an apostle or that he was, you know, the Paul, the anything, just a servant of Christ. And so it was with Timothy. He identifies the two of them together under that title. So I might ask you, what of Timothy's character that you see in this passage may the Lord be working in your life? Don't take today's passage as a call to pull yourself up and produce some kind of great character trait within yourself. We must look to the work of the Holy Spirit in us to keep us moving forward in Christ's likeness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, ooh, that's not there, that's okay. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. There will certainly be times of, of abundant growth, significant growth, but there will be other times where it appears slow and steady. Worse, perhaps, than thinking we need to produce would be thinking we need to do nothing. We should rest in confidence that God is working in us 
and step into that work like a son does with his father, trusting in him to teach and to guide. But as Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 28 to 29, he says, him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then verse 29, he says, for this I toil. This is, this is hard labor he's talking about. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, it doesn't take us too long in reading through Paul's letters to realize that there's no place that Paul says that we must produce on our own. But we do need to be active. Again, he says, for this, for this purpose of proclaiming Christ, I toil, struggling with what? With whatever he can muster, whatever he can come up with? No, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's go to Epaphroditus. First of all, something interesting about Epaphroditus, you might notice that his name is very interesting. And his name actually comes from um, the Greek goddess Epaphrodite. And it's interesting that Epaphroditus, while as, whereas many Christians who carried these pagan names changed their names, Paul makes no mention of a name change with Epaphroditus. And that is, of course, because we need no name change. What we actually need is a heart change. And so Paul is going to show through Epaphroditus, it doesn't matter what his name is or what his name meant. To us here today, we're looking at Epaphroditus, probably not thinking about Aphrodite. We're probably thinking, hopefully, through this letter, more so about Christ and what he's done through this servant of him. So what are the characteristics of Epaphroditus? He's called a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. He's a messenger and a minister, and he's a sacrificial servant. So verse 25, look at that again, please, with me. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Coming to Epaphroditus, we should point out that Paul has a different relationship with him than with Timothy. It seems that Paul knew him very little, if at all. Paul expresses a significant closeness to him in these three ways. First is a familiar relationship, calls him a brother, a working relationship, a fellow worker, and then a wartime relationship as a fellow soldier. As a brother, Paul acknowledges the close relationship based on their mutual salvation in Christ and unity by the Spirit. Now remember again, Paul doesn't know Epaphroditus nearly as well as he does Timothy. And if you want to know, again, a little bit more about Timothy, we have two letters that were written by Paul to Timothy, the second especially showing the um, close friendship that was shared by these two men. So I'd recommend that as reading for this coming week if you um, need direction for that. Um, but when it comes to Epaphroditus, he is already calling a brother, uh, a brother out of Epaphroditus is this guy that he only knew for a very short time. Now we can very easily, when we meet other Christians, say, oh wow, brother or sister in Christ, this is pretty exciting, that's great. But I don't think that Paul thinks of it so quickly as we do. I don't think, especially one who had been betrayed by false brothers so often, I don't think that he would throw around the term as loosely as perhaps Christians do today. I think that Paul, when he calls Epaphroditus a brother, is putting a seal of approval, in a sense, over the ministry of Epaphroditus. Of course, not to say that Paul is the ultimate authority on verifying one's ministry, but as he's writing authoritatively here as a leader of the church in Philippi, or rather as a founder of the church of Philippi, he is saying, I approve of this guy. This guy is genuine. He's the real deal. Well, how can you figure that out in a short time? 
circumstances of Epaphroditus' arrival to Paul's cell brought about this realization of the genuine nature of Epaphroditus. So he calls him a brother. He acknowledges that close relationship on their mutual salvation in Christ, their unity by the Spirit. As a fellow worker, he is one who, same as Paul, is working out his salvation that God is working in him and sharing in the mission of the gospel. As a fellow soldier, Paul builds on that previous idea of a fellow worker by speaking of the willingness to face opposition. Because in one sense, if you consider a worker, somebody who goes to a location of business, does a, a task, gets paid for it, and then leaves for the day, there's a difference when it comes to a soldier. A soldier's not necessarily just any other normal worker, right? He's putting his life out on the line, and he's facing opposition. And so he builds on this idea, not only is he a fellow worker, but he's really a fellow soldier. Now, in truth, if you've had military experience, I think you can tell us, and I, don't, I haven't myself, but what I've heard is that the brotherhood between brothers in arms is a significant connection, and it's a significant one built on the battlefield, and it doesn't take long in a moment where you trust your life to another person to build that kind of camaraderie if they prove faithful in the task. So this is where Paul builds on this relationship with Epaphroditus. This is what he shows to say, look, this is not as though I just, I, I had a short conversation with him and I was impressed by what he, what he knew about the Christian faith, but rather I could see that this was a man who was a brother, who was a fellow worker and a fellow soldier, one who was willing to face opposition and even suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is something Paul had been doing for years at this point and a proof of his genuine fellowship. It doesn't take long for Paul to recognize that camaraderie and to commend him back to the Philippians. He'd built a fellowship with Timothy over years of discipleship and at the same time embraced a deep-rooted fellowship with Epaphroditus over a relatively short period of time. Therefore, time is not a necessary ingredient when looking for fellowship in the mission of the gospel. Time can grow that fellowship as it did with Timothy and Paul's case. But Paul shows us the honorable servants of Christ are worthy of fellowship, trust, and commendation, even if we have only a limited time shared together. To this point, I'm, I thought back to my first week at Crosspoint, and, you know, my first week at Crosspoint was only a couple days at Crosspoint because, you know, still living in Northeast Ohio, which, by the way, um, I have a closing date on a house on Glenwood of November 13th. So we're moving forward. Really excited about that. Um, speaking of moving, if you'd like to help with that, I'd really appreciate it. Anyhow, um, I hate moving so much, but I'm glad, to, I'm glad to be moving here, and I'm glad to set, I'm hopeful to set down deep roots and to be here for a good while. So anyhow, side note, where was I? Epaphroditus, oh, time, yeah. Okay, so my first week um, of, of being in this position and, and preparing my first message, I was really excited. I went to a coffee shop. And I was working there for a good while. I had a phone call with a friend, and you know he was excited. He was a friend from college, actually, who was here last week. Um, if you got to meet him, and uh, we were talking, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm working on my sermon. I'm super excited. This is really great. I'm going to do Philippians." And um, as I as I finished the conversation, um, there was a younger gentleman who came up to my table, and uh, I was really excited to get to talk to him. He overheard me talking about putting my sermon together, and uh, decided to tell tell me that he was also going to be preaching that Sunday. It's pretty exciting. So we shared the usual pleasantries of where our hometowns are and um, discovered that we had actually only missed each other by about five years at Malone University. And that he too 
in his preparation to preach the word on Sunday, was filled with excitement and, and a great sense of the responsibility of it. So, of course, we got to say, what are you preaching from, Philippians? He was actually preaching from Mark chapter 2 and the passage regarding the paralytic being lowered through the roof to be healed by Jesus. And a smile immediately crossed my face because I was looking into the eyes of a brother who himself was paralyzed. And I was seeing joy in his anticipation of preaching this passage. And, of course, my first thought went to, how do you view a passage like that but a paralytic being healed when you yourself are paralyzed. In the most amazing way, he began to tell me the importance of the passage um, to him, not being that he was also paralyzed, was not that, you know, okay, it's great, maybe one day God will heal me, but rather it was the great need of all people for the forgiveness of sins. If you remember that passage, when the paralytic is brought down, Jesus' first words to him are what? Your sins are forgiven. Right? Which, you know, the Pharisees first are taken aback by that because who can forgive sins? Who does he think he is? Does he think he's God? And then I also imagine, there's no comment on this, but I also imagine the friends that bring the paralytic down might be wondering, I thought it was pretty obvious what we were looking for here, Jesus. Um, we didn't say anything about sins. There's, he can't walk, you know? Uh, there's, there's an obvious problem that needs fixed here. I cannot tell you how encouraged I was by this conversation of this brother in the Lord, and this is what I mean, was a guy who's been in the word and he was telling me, isn't it amazing that Christ can forgive our sins? He said from his wheelchair, you guys. He wasn't looking at this and just, and, and just wondering, like, why God, why haven't you healed me yet? Why am I? He embraced where he was and he rejoiced in Christ meeting our deepest needs. That kind of thing can can mess your heart up pretty good in a short conversation. And so it did with me. There was something of his faith that he was wearing on his sleeve that shaped that conversation for me and encouraged me and filled me with a fresh zeal to preaching the gospel. So coming to the end of verse 25, Epaphroditus has not traveled alongside Paul. He's not a disciple of Paul directly. Rather, he's a messenger from the Philippian church to Paul. So look at verse 25 thought it necessary to send you. He's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So again, in drawing a contrast between Timothy and Epaphroditus, Timothy is going um, to serve the church on behalf of Paul and to bring back good news for Paul. But Epaphroditus is sent from the Philippian church to Paul to serve him in his need. Now, what is Paul's great need at this time? Where is he? He's in prison. And what do you need when you're in prison from your friends? everything right so i mean we could list it support you need prayer you need food you need a change of clothes those kind of things um the the jailer doesn't care about your needs you need your friends to be there and so epaphroditus has come to deliver the message from the philippians to him that they love him that they care for him that they are in fellowship with him they are united with him and to bring him some support in an age where letters are especially important means of communication, the choosing of Epaphroditus to deliver the message already says much about his proven trustworthiness. You know, it, we, we believe that Epaphroditus would have been carrying this letter to the Philippians from Paul, that Paul would have said, I trust you with, I mean, he, I don't know how, how much Paul knew of it, and I certainly know Epaphroditus probably was clueless, but he was basically saying, I trust you with the Bible, you know? 
with this letter that I'm writing to the church. I trust you with that. Um, it wasn't just, you know, forwarding an email today and saying, well, I hope you remember to forward that other, to that other person for me. And, it's, you know, it's not nearly as big of a deal. This is a letter that Paul's writing that is his very heart to the Philippian church. And Paul's trusting Epaphroditus with it. You can't just trust anyone with such an important job. So he was sent as a representative of the church to serve Paul in his need in prison in Rome. Paul calls this service a work of Christ on behalf of the Philippians. So let's read that verse. He's, uh, let's see, sorry, end of 25, your messenger and minister to my need. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice. And in seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This work of Christ that he was doing was being sent to Paul with a gift from the Philippian church. It's really cool because, you know, you might, you might think of something as the work of Christ in, in means of its significance and its importance and, you know, building large buildings and preaching great sermons and going to far off countries. But here is an act of support to a brother in Christ. And Paul says, this is a work of Christ it was a service to me, and I, I recognize it, I appreciate it, I need it, and I honor the one that you sent to do this on your behalf. In verses 26 through 28, as we just read, you see that um, Paul has a desire to send Epaphroditus back, presumably carrying the letter that we now read. But Epaphroditus was at one point extremely sick. He became so because of his traveling to Paul on behalf of the church. Having now become well, he longs to return back home, not because he's well and he's excited for the journey and he's ready for it, but why? Why is it that he wants to go back? Because they heard that he was sick. He wants to reassure the church that they would no longer worry about him. That's very telling about his character, right? Paul could have said, yeah, he's excited to go back. He's excited to get back to his everyday life, back to his job, his family, back to coming to church on Sunday. No, Epaphroditus was saying, Paul, I need to get back. I'm feeling much better. I'm not going to die just yet. Um, I'm, I'm going to continue on. I need to get back to Philippi and tell them because I know they're worried about me. So even, even Epaphroditus' desire to return back home is wrapped up in considering others as more significant than himself. So his service in his service, he has made quite a sacrifice. Not that he definitely knew that he would fall ill if he went after Paul, but that if he hadn't gone, he may have avoided it entirely and yet chose to and became one who, as Paul says here, he nearly died for the work of Christ. So at some point, again, it's not to say Epaphroditus says, well, I know if I go to Rome, I'm going to get sick. No, he didn't know that was coming. But at some point along the journey, he became sick did not decide to go back home and say, well, apparently I'm not the right guy for the job here. He followed through with the mission that the church sent him on, and he's worthy of honor for that. And that leads us to 29 and 30. As Paul says that we ought to receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. They, he risked his life 
to complete what was lacking in your service to me. A little note on that, that notion of what was lacking in their service. It wasn't, it wasn't to say that, you know, you guys are doing an okay job at serving me, but you could do a little bit better. Good thing Epaphroditus came in here and fixed it for you. It wasn't that at all. It was to say that there was a great distance between Paul and Philippi. And I think that Paul has every confidence that if it were possible, the whole church would have all caravaned out to Rome to care for Paul. But rather, the thing that was lacking was a lack of distance. There was a desire for the Philippians church, Philippian church to be with Paul, to, even in a representative way. And so that's what Epaphroditus fulfilled. Paul tells us to receive guys like Epaphroditus as the Lord would receive him. Again, here he says, receive him in the Lord. And how would the Lord receive, receive Epaphroditus? With joy and honoring him, recognition of their work. This might make you think of um, when Jesus tells the parable of the talents and the, the master comes back home to see what his servants had done while he was gone. And the servants who did well, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. This is that response of joy and recon, recognition of what they had done, honorable work. I think that it kind of, not just kind of, it drastically transforms my view of God in thinking that he takes joy in what I do for his kingdom's sake. And so he does with you. That ought to motivate us. Think back to Timothy serving Paul as a son serves with his father. And you know, fathers and mothers that as, as you've um, done work and in different places at the home perhaps, uh, as we talked about earlier, and your kids are trying to follow, they're trying to take part in what you're doing, there's nothing more adorable than little kids trying to do big people work, right? It's, it's awesome. It's such a joy to get to see. And I believe that that is in a way what Paul is trying to express to us of the viewpoint of God of his children doing the work, working out what he is working in their hearts. These examples of Paul, of, of, well, we'll actually see the example of Paul pretty soon, but the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus should open our eyes to search for examples in our midst of the same character traits. We're not in competition with each other. We must rejoice in what we see God doing in and through others and press forward to see what he'll be doing in us. By grace we've been saved, and by grace we are being changed, transformed into the image of Christ, given the mind of Christ, and submitting to that more and more each day. We work out what God is working in us for his glory, not for our own. Jesus has accomplished the work at the cross, cross in humility on our behalf. So he works humility into our hearts as we embrace the work of calling people to Christ. So here's your prayer response, a little, a little help for you as we stop for a moment to, to pray and consider what the Lord is speaking to us. So just kind of gave three requests that came to my heart as I've been spending time in this passage. I was led to ask the Lord to please help me to see Christ-like character in others and to learn from them. Because it doesn't just do us good to pat people on the back. If you see somebody doing something that is clearly the work of the Lord, encourage them, honor them, rejoice in them, and then do the same. Secondly, I was encouraged to pray, Lord, save me from areas in my life where I have not embraced the mind of Christ, where humility does not reign. Even certain times of day where I say, and here now at the end of the day is my time to do what I want. This is my day off. This is my whatever it might be. Save me from those areas of my life. And then lastly, Lord, work in me the character of Christ. Enable me to work out the same in all my areas of life. 